Let us pray before we get into God's Word here this evening. Father, as, as we have sung and, and as we heard this, this evening just a little bit ago, Lord, thank You. Thank You for, for fulfilling Your promise. The promise that You made to Abraham. That You would send a son. You would send someone to stand in the place of sinners. And that is Jesus. And so, Lord, this evening we, we take the time to remember Him. Always, not just this evening, but always, every day, every moment. Because apart from Him, we have no hope. And if we are here and able to enjoy anything that we do have in the pleasures of this world, it's only because of Jesus. It's in Him, by Him, and through Him, and for Him are all things. And we want to bow down, prostrate our hearts and our minds this evening before Your Word, before Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and our King. Work in the hearts of Your people through the Holy Spirit. Illuminate our hearts and our minds and help me to proclaim Your truth and the Gospel clearly that the Holy Spirit may apply it to the heart of Your people and encourage them in the process. Be exalted, O God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I know, parents, you've probably already had the conversation. If not, you've already may have had it before, but you've already spoken to your kids at some point about what Christmas is all about, right? And you kids are no different. You know exactly... I know my kids, uh, we've told them all the time and every year, and I'm sure it kind of becomes very routine, right? And for us parents to say, hey, you know, Christmas is not about the gifts, it's about the gift giver, you know, the one that gave his son. And, and so we say these things, and, and, and we mean them, of course. But what does it mean in a practical sense? We can say Emmanuel, God is with us, but what does that mean? I mean, Jesus is not here physically, is he? You don't see him physically. He's not tangible, but he's here. He's going to be with you when you walk out of those doors and get in your car and go wherever you're going to go. So what does it mean for God, Emmanuel, God with us? What does that look like? What does that mean in a real way? And that is my heart here this evening, is to be able to hopefully um, bring that to, to some, to connect it. You know, what we know in our, in our head, and, and that it, it makes sense in our heart, and how we live and how we flesh that out. Right? He is our counselor. He is our prince of peace. But what does that mean? What does that look like in a real tangible way in our lives? And so the incarnation, what we're celebrating in Christmas time, is God has become flesh. What John 1 had spoken about. What John 1 had written about. The word became flesh, the eternal Word. Not a concept, but the Word, the Logos. He is now with us. In the Old Testament, God had, had appeared to the prophet. He appeared to Abraham. I mean, you see, you, you know, definitely we know Moses. When Moses wants to see, show me your face. And, and God, but and he had appeared in, in, in pillars of clouds and, and, and fire. And, and you see these things and these images. But in history, for the first time, we see God 
in the flesh. Everything from the Old Testament now has come, the promises, everything that God had done is now a reality. So this incarnation, instead of just getting into the miracle and saying, okay, how does this really explain, can we explain the incarnation scientifically? What does that look like? Don't miss the point. The incarnation means something to us. And so uh, tonight I, wa I want to be able to go through Luke 18. Luke 18 verses 9 through 14. It's a, it's a, it's a passage that we've read about Luke writes this in his gospel it's about a Pharisee and a tax collector and here we're, I hope to connect the incarnation God becoming flesh Christ dwelling among us now in this passage and so the Incarnation, just three points. The Incarnation confirms the wickedness of our human heart. And that's the heart of the Pharisee that we're going to see. The Incarnation confirms the wickedness of the human heart, which is the heart of the Pharisee. Secondly, the Incarnation confirms our desperate need. And that's the heart of the tax collector. The Incarnation confirms our desperate need as humans. And third, and the final point, is that the Incarnation provides us with hope in Jesus. Okay? So, let us read together Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. And it says, The Pharisee and the tax collector, you probably see that in your, in your pericope, right? So it says, verse 9, He also told this parable, so Jesus is telling this parable, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In verses 9 through 12, we see clearly the wickedness of the human heart. What do I mean? Well, like I just said a moment ago, this parable is told by Jesus. The incarnation, right? The Incarnation, the One, the Logos made flesh, is telling this parable. He's speaking it. This is not Luke writing about something that Jesus had said long ago. No, this is Jesus speaking it. And now, this was not Jesus' first parable. Okay, He had given different forms of, of, of parables, different parables. He had the, just a little bit prior to this, uh, the persistent widow in the, in the first eight verses of, of Luke 18. We see um, the prodigal son in Luke 
15, a couple of chapters prior to that, all of you are familiar with. And I'm just picking some of the parables that you guys are familiar with. Okay? So the prodigal son, everybody's heard about the prodigal son. But parables are tricky. Parables are tricky. Why? Because they communicate spiritual truths, but not everybody gets them. You know what I mean? In other words, those are the parables that for some people, they get it. And the other people, goes right over their head. What is he trying to say? Happened a couple of times to the disciples. Right? Cabin to a rabbi. He says, how are you the teacher of these things and you don't understand them? So Jesus had a way because this is how Easterners thought. This is how they spoke. They wanted to communicate spiritual truths. Some will get it. Some will not. Give me an example. Right? In the Old Testament, you have uh, in 2 Samuel, Nathan and David. Right? You know that little that story where Nathan comes, the prophet Nathan comes to, to David and tells him about this female sheep that this poor man had. And this poor man had been raising this, this, this female sheep and had dedicated himself to raising her and being with the family and being taking care of the, of the sheep. But then here comes this rich man. And this rich man comes and takes the female sheep from the poor man. And Nathan tells that to David. And David, of course, gets, gets heated. What would you do? He's like, Kill that guy. That's David's response. And Nathan clearly tells him, you know who that man is? That's you, David. That's what you had done to Uriah when you sent him out to the battlefield. And you had, you had him killed so you can be with Bathsheba. Do you see that? In other words, David didn't get it. But Nathan had to tell him, that man is you. You're the rich man. And you're the one that took this poor man's sheep, his bride. And so, this is, and this is in Scripture. See, this is the beauty about Scripture. It doesn't hide anything. It doesn't pull any punches. It doesn't, God doesn't paint this beautiful picture of holy people. No, no, we're messed up. Completely messed up. Which is why Christmas is so important. It's the beginning of this, this Savior, this Christ, this Son given to us. And so, who, who is Jesus speaking this parable to? He's speaking and describes, and Luke describes these, these people that are listening to the parable in two ways. He says, one, they're righteous. And he says that they looked on others with contempt. Think about that for a second. They were righteous and they treated others with contempt. What does contempt mean? You know what contempt means. You guys, some of you have done it, some of you do it. Look at others, you know, it's what we say, you look down on others, Right? Well, in other words, you're better than that person. Beloved, righteousness, self-righteousness does that to our hearts. Self-righteousness makes you believe that you are better. And by default, because you believe that you're better, everybody else is beneath you. Everybody else is below you. And so it's very important that we understand this because the Pharisees here are the ones that Jesus is talking about. The, this, this Pharisee that he's going to tell in this parable. Look at what he says. He says, their self-righteousness. In other words, they're, self -right they're, they're righteous, right? It's their self-righteousness that's their security. What are they holding on to? It's their righteousness. But this Pharisee, really what this parable is doing is putting the Pharisee as a mirror. It's putting this Pharisee so that when you look at the Pharisee and you listen to the Pharisee in the parable, if that's you, you're kind of looking in the mirror there. You can't escape it. 
Because if the shoe fits, now you have to wear it. And that's exactly what's happening. This Pharisee looks to others and tries to measure himself horizontally first. He looks to... Notice what it says in the, in the text. He's looking to the others with contempt. The measuring stick was not God, whose perfection. The measuring stick was who? Others. Others were the measuring stick. The extortioner, the unjust, the adulterer, the tax collector who was just a little bit far off. You see what's happening? The Pharisee was looking sideways and was more concerned with what's happening with him uh, with others sideways. Luke 16 and Matthew 23, Jesus doesn't commend the Pharisees. He actually does the opposite. And Scripture even calls them brood of vipers. He doesn't, you know, Jesus doesn't mince words when it comes to the Pharisees. He was harsh when he needed to be harsh. Not for being harsh for harshness sake. But Jesus didn't pull punch because that's exactly what the truth was. Jesus didn't sin by calling them a brood of vipers. He was calling exactly the condition of their heart. And by default, if the Pharisee is looking on everybody else with contempt, guess who the standard now becomes? The Pharisee himself. He becomes a standard, right? Because if you're up here and everybody else is down here, then what you're doing is exactly what everybody else must be doing. It's your righteousness. And I suspect that every single person in this room is exactly this way. At some level. You might not call yourself a Pharisee. Allow me to elaborate. You think this is just for unbelievers? Yeah, that's the easy one. The unbeliever is the easy one. The unbeliever, the one that compares himself to the guy in prison or the woman in prison. Right? The unbeliever, the one that compares himself to the friend who's cheating on her husband. Or the guy that compares himself to his co-worker who's always drunk and never goes home. Ah, see, at least I go home to my family. I must, I'm, that must count for something. But that's not, see, that, that's the easy one. And unbelievers are going to do that because they don't know the truth. But what about you as a believer? Oh, I don't do that? Oh, I do. Just as much as you do. When you look at others that don't believe the same way that you do. When they don't apply the Scriptures the same way you do. I'm not talking about heresy. If it's heresy, it's heresy. There's no, there's no way to go around that. But what I'm simply saying is, remember that you too believe certain things before, and you also grew in grace. The Lord also enlightened your heart. The Lord also illuminated your mind. Just take inventory. What did you believe five years ago? What did you believe two years ago? About the gospel. Huh? It's not the same, is it? I go back and sometimes, oh, I came from such and such church and I look back and I'm like, what I used to believe back then, not that I didn't believe the gospel, but I misapplied it in many, in many ways. I was very fervent that altar calls were the way that God saved people. And I came to realize that there's no such thing in Scripture, but I grew into that. It didn't, it didn't just all of a sudden, you know, come to me one day. 
I, I started reading scripture, the Lord started working in me, and I was saying, you know what? Where do I see this? Where does it say, repeat a sinner's prayer? Now, do I go ahead and look down on everybody that does the sinner's prayer and says, repeat after me? That's the challenge. Because as believers, we at some level are Pharisees. And whenever, and you don't realize it, but one good test to find out if you have this self-righteousness is when you look at others with contempt. When you look at other believers, other brothers and sisters in Christ who, die, who Christ died for and shed His blood for, when you look down on them because they don't believe the way you believe. And they don't look the way you look. And they don't worship the way you worship. That's the challenge. Because all of us have that. And so that's the wickedness of our heart. That's why the incarnation had to happen. That's why God had to come. Because of these wicked hearts that we have. If you believe that your righteous deeds are the ones that are going to get you into heaven, you're wrong. Because your righteous need, your righteous deed, your, your deeds rather, only confirm your unrighteousness, not your righteousness. That's the difference. I know some of you kids have heard it, and maybe your, your friends have been singing it. You heard it on the radio. You know, Santa's coming to town, right? And you see and you hear these songs, and you think, oh, Santa, you know, he's making a list and he's checking it twice. He's trying to find out who's naughty or nice. Guys, if, if the issue was really about being naughty or nice, we might have a shot. We might have a shot. Because all of you have done nice things, right? Some of you have bought things. Maybe you bought something for a coworker that didn't deserve it that maybe insulted you, and you bought him a gift at Christmas. That's a nice thing, right? Giving something to someone that doesn't deserve it. But eternity is not about nice things. Eternity is about righteousness. That's the difference. On, here on earth, we can go ahead and look at nice things, and, all, and you can try to say, well, that's nice or that's not nice. But to make it to heaven, it's a different story. You need to be perfect. You need righteousness. Nothing less. Just a tad below righteousness, you're unrighteous automatically. Right? It's a, that, that constant example. 99.9% .9 is what? It's not pure. It could be the closest thing to purity. But it's still impure. By that point one, Or that point zero 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 one. You need to be perfect. And the incarnation brings that hope for us. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Very familiar verse for us. You parents have said it many times, many times to your children. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. Not some. All. Edwin mentioned it last week, right? He looked at his, at his, at his grandson. Some of you saw his post on Facebook. There he is holding it, holding the child. I know you guys saw the baby's face, you know, looking at Edwin. But what Edwin said last week was exactly right. That child was conceived in sin. And that child is a sinner. It's hard to view it that way. But that's who we are because Romans 3 is true. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, not one. Psalm 14, 1 through 3. The fool says in his heart. That's, that's a strong word. The fool. The one that's not thinking. The one that's not paying attention. That's the person that's... A, that fool says there is no God. Wants to live the way they want to live. Because they want to be a law to themselves. 
They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. There's none that's righteous. In other words, there's none that's righteous enough to make it to heaven on their own merit. You can feed the homeless from here till kingdom come. And you can buy gifts and you can give money to the, to the, to the peddler on the corner at the end of the turnpike on the off-ramp. And that's not going to be enough. You can write a check on your last breath and say, give all my money and all my riches to this person who doesn't deserve it. And guess what? That's not going to be enough. So believer, take inventory. Brother and sister, take inventory of your own heart. Are you looking at others with contempt? And if you are, Christmas brings that hope. That's what the incarnation does. And if you're an unbeliever, the measuring stick is not to your left or your right. The measuring stick is vertical. It's perfection. It's Christ. The incarnation makes the level, the ground level. There's no one here that stands a little bit higher than others. We all stand level at the cross. And point two is the incarnation confirms our desperate need. And these two prayers are juxtaposed, by the way. Notice what the parable does. Notice what Jesus does. He's grabbing two parables. He's grabbing two prayers. One from the, from the Pharisee and one from the tax collector. And he's putting them together, comparing them. That's what juxtaposed means, right? He's putting them side by side and you're comparing them. What is the tax collector doing? He's not received. Now remember, tax collectors are very interesting. No one likes them. You guys don't like them come April 14th. No one here likes them. No one likes Uncle Sam. No one likes the IRS. No one wants to dish out money. But you got to do it. And when Uncle Sam comes knocking, you better pay up. And if you don't, you're going to be booked for tax evasion. So no one liked. And, and, for, and in this time, the tax collectors were usually people that were siding with the Romans who were viewed as what? The enemy. And so no one liked the tax collectors. They were basically Jews, like I said, working for the enemy. It's, 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 that, it's that simple. And to make matters worse, who would they force to pay the tax? Was their own people, the Jews. Well, ah, but I'm a Jew. Hopefully you can cut us a break. No. Nope. Time to pay up. You got to pay. And that's the challenging part. So Mark, in Mark 2, if you, if you recall, you have Jesus talking about these Pharisees, or rather Jesus being accused by the Pharisees of mingling with these tax collectors. Jesus, but you're, 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 you're with the tax collectors, right? Surely you've you got to be a, a little you know, favoritism there. I mean, why would you be mingling with these tax collectors? You know what people think of them. You know how people feel. But in Matthew... Matthew 18, and, and, we, and we know this part because this is the one where all of us are familiar with Matthew 18 and how we deal with forgiveness and so on and so forth. Jesus says that there's no repentance that's being made by the person after you send one person and then two brothers. And even then, if they still don't repent, you bring them up before the assembly and then let them, let them talk things out, right? If not, put them outside. If there's no repentance, if they don't come to their senses. And he says what? Treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector. So Jesus was aware of what tax collectors really were viewed as. It wasn't a secret. Now, 
I know some of you may be thinking, so does that mean that Jesus hated tax collectors? No. Does he hate Gentiles? No. We know that Scripture doesn't teach that. How do I know that? Because Matthew even elaborates on that a little bit more. Who was Matthew? Matthew was a tax collector. So if Jesus had nothing to do with tax collectors, why would he call Matthew? See, in other words, when we read our Scripture, Scripture interprets Scripture, we come to see that Jesus was not shunning the tax collectors. He actually called them. He called them. And you continue reading in this, in this, in this uh, parable, the Pharisee starts his prayer right. He says, God, thank you. And you read that, and he says, God, I thank you. What a wonderful prayer. What a great way to begin. You would probably teach that to your kids. You would teach your kids to pray that way. Hey, God, thank you. Emily's shaking her head. Yeah, you say, God, thank you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've given me. Thank you for this family. Thank you for the home. Thank you for whatever. Great way to start. But it doesn't end up well, does it? Immediately that prayer goes awry. It, goes, it, it, it changes course. It deviates. And when you compare that prayer to the one of the tax collector, very different. Night and day. The tax collector can't even lift up his eyes. I would think. You think about this tax collector probably just sitting. I can only imagine, because Scripture doesn't describe it, but I can only imagine this, this tax collector there not even being able to lift up his eyes. You know, when you try to lift someone's countenance and, and lift their face up, look at me, and they don't even want to because they just, the weight of their burden of what they know they have done is just weighing down on them. They can't even look up. And the Scripture says that he's even beating his chest. He's beating his chest. What is that a symbol of? Guilt. I know what I have done. And this is the heart of where we start, where Jesus is really getting at. Beloved, there's a right way and a wrong way to pray. I know sometimes we tell people, hey, just pray, there's no wrong way. There's no wrong way. Clearly, there's a wrong way because you can miss the point. You can go ahead and pray and say all the right things. See, I can say the same thing. I can say, God, thank you that I haven't fallen into adultery. God, thank you that I've been, you, you, you've allowed me to be faithful at work. Right? Yeah, I mess up, but there's a difference. When I can say those things and say, God, thank you, but I'm very well aware that I could easily do that if it weren't for His grace. That I could easily be the one that go ahead and, and cheats on my wife. I could be the one that could easily go ahead and get in a drunk driving accident because I had a little bit too much that night. That could easily be me. And that could have been you if it were not for God's grace and His mercy. There's a right way and a wrong way to pray. And secondly, what should you say when you pray? Well, yes, Jesus taught us in Matthew how to pray in Matthew 6. Tells us, think of God, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Yes, it's about Him. It's about His kingdom, right? Give us this day our daily bread. Immediately the prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray, you have to recognize your need. But your need isn't for daily bread. Yes, there's sustenance. That is true. There is sustenance. You need bread. You need food to live. 
But what Jesus was getting at, there's something more important. We need forgiveness. We need mercy. We need grace. If Lord, if you never give me another piece of bread ever again to eat, but you extend your mercy and your grace to me, that's more than enough. I'd rather die hungry without bread, but do not take your mercy or your grace from me. You ever heard of that song? The one that some of you are familiar with, Fernando Ortega, right? You can have all in this world, but give me Jesus. You can have all in this world, but give me Jesus. Don't take him from me. Not that God will, but in many ways we feel like we're holding on and and we're slipping or we're losing our grip. And that, and that is where we have to remind ourselves we have to recognize our need. That we need to be forgiven. And that only He can forgive us of our sin. The Pharisee had 33 words in his prayer. You know how many the tax collector had? A lot less. A third of that. Maybe a fourth of that. Or a fifth of that. It doesn't matter how, how long your prayer is. Don't mistake, don't fool yourself thinking the more verbose and the more eloquent I am with my prayers, God is going to appreciate them and He's going to hear them. No. Because the matters of the heart. You can pray all the right things and say all the right things, but the heart of the Pharisee was the right one. What does he say? He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He doesn't get into the whole theology of what sin is. He doesn't get into the doctrine of of what mercy is. That tax collector knew one thing. That he is God. And only God can extend his mercy. And that he was a sinner. And he needed God's mercy. Those seven words communicate that truth coming from that man's heart. Are those the words that come from your heart? Are those the words that come from my heart? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the pleading. And I know some of you may not really understand that. Because your prayer ultimately is not accepted by the eloquence of your words, by, by the position of your heart. And I'm not talking about a physical heart. I'm talking about your seat, your emotions. Isaiah 1, 15, 18 says, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they shall become as wool. To get to the part where you reason with the Lord, you have to understand the evil evil of your heart, how wicked your heart is. And the tax collector understood that. The incarnation of Christ not only reminds us of the wickedness of our heart, but our desperate need. And that the incarnation screams 
This night, we know that Christ was not born on Christmas Day, I get it. But the incarnation screams to you and to me that God did something about it. That God didn't just stand by on the sidelines watching all eternity and everything that Adam had undone in the garden. And he didn't just stand by and say, well, what can I do? I can't do anything. That's not what God did. On the contrary, he sends his only begotten son. And that leads us to our hope, our final point. That is our hope in verse 14. Jesus tells them to his audience, the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Justified. What does that mean? What does that mean that that man went home justified? That before the eyes of God, that man went home just as if he had never sinned. You see that? That man walked in that day to pray a sinner. And he was walking out justified. The Pharisee walks in a sinner and walks right back out a sinner. What's the difference? God's grace. And the incarnation brings that hope to you and to me. Major Ian Thomas says this. He says, he looks at Jesus just as if he committed all of my sins. All of your sins, when God looks at you, Ethan, when he looks at you, Carlos, when he looks at his children, he doesn't see Astrid the sinner. He sees Astrid, the one who his son paid for her sins. And that applies to you if you are in Christ. That he sees you. My son covered your sins. You're okay. You're okay. You have nothing to fear because my son paid for it. Psalm 51, 17. The words of David. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. If you're wondering, what must I do to be right with God? It's exactly, this is the beginning. Understand that you're broken. Understand that you are broken, that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. God can forgive. The only reason why God can do what He does and forgive us is because He despised and rejected His Son on the cross. So when you put your faith and trust in Him, you know that for sure you are forgiven. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's the beauty of the gospel. And we can talk about the gospel all we want. But what we have to remember is this. The incarnation is the beginning. He comes, the word comes and dwells among us. But the word did not stay with us, did he? In other words, he went to a cross. The author of Hebrews says this, that for the joy set before him, who Jesus, Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endures what? The cross. 
That is why he came. In other words, the story is not just about a baby that remains in a manger. That baby grew. That baby grew in obedience. That child was in a temple speaking the scriptures. People were aware, like, isn't his dad a carpenter? Because people didn't get it. Jesus is the eternal word. Everything was by him, for him, and through him. All things are for him. And when you understand that, and you understand that that child would grow up and start preaching the good news in different towns, wherever he would go, only that his end was going to be a cross. That's the gospel. He goes to a cross, goes to a tomb. In a couple of months from now, what are we going to be doing? Easter. And it's hard for us to really understand these things because just within four months, five months, whenever Easter lands, today we're celebrating the Incarnation, and four months we're celebrating the Resurrection. But we have to understand what happens that Scripture doesn't just simply go by in, in, a, in four months' time. On the contrary. Jesus, for three years, walked this ministry, and Jesus' life, for three years, changed this world. He brought hope where there was no hope. He became our hope. So wherever you go, in my conclusion, wherever you go tonight, you're going to get in your car, some of you may go home, some of you may go to a family member's house, relative's house, homes, I don't know. But wherever you go tonight, or wherever you go tomorrow and have brunch or breakfast, remember, remember what the incarnation means. That God sent His only begotten Son because we were wicked, because we have a need, and because we need hope. And Jesus became our hope. That is why the incarnation is so important. Isaiah 53 is so important here. Genesis 9 as well. And you guys know Genesis 9 where you see the flood. And you see this flood and you see that, that God is right, but we, all of you see the rainbow. And I've said this before, but Spurgeon paints this beautiful picture. He paints this beautiful picture that God had destroyed the world through a flood. And he promises that never again will he destroy the world with a flood. And how does he make that promise? There's a rainbow that appears. But the word in Hebrew, the word in Hebrew actually means a battle bow, a war bow. It's not about Skittles. It's a bow. And that bow, Spurgeon writes and he says, you know what that bow means? If you look at the bow, it's actually painting in which direction? Where is it, where, where is it facing? It's not facing downward, is it? It's facing upward. Why is it facing upward? Because you understand that that arrow had a name on it. And that arrow had the name of Christ from all eternity. That bow was meant for Christ. That is the hope that we have. He got all of God's wrath. You can have mercy. So you can have grace. That is why Christ came. 
And that is why the enemy wanted to go ahead and do That's why every child, two years or under, were going to get murdered. Because Christ couldn't make it. He wasn't supposed to make it in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of Herod. But God is a God that fulfills his promises. And Jesus would go to the cross for us. May that be your hope this Christmas season. And not just tonight, and not just tomorrow, but every day of your lives, that you hold on to Christ and thank you that you came to stand in my place. Because if Christ didn't come, we're in trouble. But he did come. And now you can know that hope, that mercy, that grace, if you put your faith and trust in him. Let us pray. Father, we, I just ask that this evening your people would be encouraged with the wonderful news of the gospel and what the incarnation means. It's not just about a baby, but it's, it's more, so much more than that. Our, our hearts and our minds can't even begin to fathom the implications of that. We can read it in your word, but Lord, if we're honest, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that you, a holy God, would send your only begotten Son for sinners. Lord, I wouldn't send my child for, for a murder on, on death row. And you did that for us. Thank you. Thank you for your love and thank you for your unconditional love to your children in Christ. May your children appreciate the joy that we now have and that we can now live in daily because of what Jesus did. May your children live to proclaim that magnificent truth. Not just to their children, not just in their homes, or wherever they go. Thank you for giving us a hope and a reason to be joyful this season and always. Because Emmanuel is with us today. He promised that he will never forsake us. He promised that he will never leave us. And for that we thank you. Use us now wherever we go to proclaim the truth of the gospel with love and with grace. In Jesus' name, amen.